Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. How are you doing today, Sarah? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. Um, you, you look like you're struggling a little bit. Is your throat tired from just recording our Patreon stuff? Um, well, I've had a sore throat all week, and now it's kind of in recovery mode, but I still have like spots where certain types of words are like painful to say for some reason so it's just like a bit of a bit of a struggle here but like you know getting over it and i'm sure that an entire day of talking about things for scream scene won't have any adverse effect at all yeah listeners we just finished recording our special patreon q a episode for our 100th week on patreon we had solicited questions from uh, all of our listeners, and we have just answered them. So that is up on our Patreon as of this past Monday, uh, available to patrons of any level. If you haven't checked that out yet, head on over to patreon.com slash Podcast. Give it a listen. Uh, we are recording this on Oscar Sunday, uh, and we'll probably be missing out on watching the Academy Awards because we'll be watching an old horror movie and talking about it and doing the show, which is fine. I'm fine with missing out on watching the ceremony. Uh, what are we watching? Today, Sarah, we are watching The Beast with Five Fingers from 1946, directed by Robert Flory, who we have not seen for a very long time. Yes. But who certainly made an impression. For, uh, 14 years? 13 years? Uh, I guess... 13, 14 years, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was the director of Murders in the Rue Morgue from 1932, uh, which was a very interesting film that uh, has, ever since we covered it on the show, kind of been a difficult movie to rank movies around. Yeah, it's kind of a sticking point yeah. because it's very dark in its horror and pushing boundaries um, but then it balances that with singing college students. And it's also just, like, a very uneven movie in yes. general. Yeah. I hope that Beast with Five Fingers is better. Mm -hmm. Now, Murders in the Rue Morgue was based on, I want to say, Edgar Allan Poe? Yeah, it was an Edgar Allan Poe short story. And it was, like, the original story follows a detective solving this murder, whatever. The Beast with Five Fingers is at least, like, adapted from a short story that is like a first-person horror story, or okay. at the very least macabre story. Yeah, because the the thing about the Poe story that inspires Murders in the Rue Morgue is it's more like a Sherlock Holmesian kind of thing. Yeah. Where it's like, how could this murder have occurred in this locked room? And it turns out the answer is gorilla. <laughs> God, yeah. Why why always with gorillas, man? Glands and gorillas. So I've never read The Beast with Five Fingers. I've never really heard of it before looking at this movie. Um, what can you tell me about it, Sarah? Okay, well, I have a question for you first. Okay. You've seen the poster yes, for this movie. Which is just a hand. 
Yeah. A big hand. Yeah. Because I guess hands have five fingers. Yeah. And beasts that have hands with five fingers are like primates, I guess. So either the beast with five fingers is man or this is another gorilla movie. Mm-hmm. That's what my deductive logical reasoning has brought me to. Fantastic. Let's put a pin in that and we okay. will come back to that. All right. The Beast with Five Fingers started as a short story by a man named W.F. Harvey. Okay. William Fryer Harvey. He was born in 1885 in England. In Leeds, England. <laughs> okay. Is, is that a clue? You're saying all these things like they're clues. <laughs> Everything's a clue, Ben. Gotta pay attention. Okay. Born to a Quaker family in England, Harvey went to Quaker schools, eventually earning a medical degree from Leeds University. With a Quaker who writes horror stories. Right? Right. With his medical training and Quaker beliefs, he joined the Friends Ambulance Unit during World War One. Okay which was a volunteer service founded by Quakers. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if, if you don't know who Quakers are, just think of, like, pacifists. Like, yeah. it's more than that, but like, think, like, pacifists. Yeah, they're religious pacifists is an easy way to think about it for now. Yeah. Throughout his youth, Harvey had poor health, which was further exacerbated by lung damage he received during his time as a surgeon lieutenant of the Royal Navy. Sure. After World War I, he became a warden at the Working Men's College, one of the earliest adult education schools. After five years, however, his health had worsened, and he retired. Throughout his life, Harvey was a writer, mostly of short stories. Uh, He published his first collection in 1910, titled Midnight House and Other Tales, which includes August Heat, uh, one of his more well-known short stories. He wrote essays, memoirs, and more, but it's his fiction that W.F. Harvey is most remembered by. The short stories were usually dark and macabre, mysterious horror stories. Yeah, this guy's... This guy, I really want to, like, dig into this guy's whole deal, because, like, Quaker (laughs) surgeon, pacifist... Listen, when you're a surgeon, especially during the war, like, you see some shit. Oh, sure. It's just, yeah. I know, it's fascinating to me. Okay. His most famous story is The Beast with Five Fingers, which was first published in the first volume of an anthology series titled The New Decameron in 1919, alongside works by D.H. Lawrence, Dorothy Sayers, and others. Okay, sure. That's prestigious company. Harvey's story was then titled The Psychic Researcher's Tale to keep with the Decameron theme of strange stories told by people traveling together. Right, because it's, it's sort of a... The Decameron originally is like a Boccaccio thing that's sort of like Italian Canterbury Tales, basically. Yeah. So, like, yeah, they're trying to, like, redo that sort of idea. That makes sense. So, sorry, it was called The Psychic Researcher's Tale? Yeah, um... And it was actually the first story in the book. <laughs> okay, so, okay. So, like, the thing that opens it, you start off strong, you know? Okay. The more familiar title of The Beast with Five Fingers was arrived at with the 1928 collection of Harvey's own works, of which this is the title, Titular Story. Ah, I see. Okay. Harvey died in 1937, 
This film uh, came out nine years later and actually sparked a resurgence of interest in Harvey's works. Okay. Um, there was a 1951 fourth collection of his work published titled The Arm of Mrs. Egan and Other Stories, including some of his drafts of work. Oh, okay. Um, and I think this is partly why Beast with Five Fingers is his most well-known title. Mm-hmm. So the short story. Okay. I couldn't find an actual synopsis of it, so I found the short story and read it. Okay. Adrian Borlsover is an eccentric... Sorry, boils over? <laughs> Borlsover. Okay. He is an eccentric bachelor. All right. He's always been very good with his hands. Um, for example, he would draw his own illustrations for scientific papers. Don't give me that look. Ben's wiggling his eyebrows. You don't say. Yes. So, yeah, he would, he would draw his own illustrations for scientific papers. And these skills came in handy when he went blind at 50 years old. Ah. Adrian caught on with Braille and other touch-related um, ways of getting around pretty easily because he was so good with his hands. One day, his equally eccentric nephew, Eustace, noticed Adrian's right hand was writing as Adrian was reading Braille with his left hand. And it wasn't just like copying out what the Braille said, but it was just like writing bits of random sentences. So like, honesty is the best policy, and then writing out names, and then like... Sure, it's doing something totally different than what the left hand is reading. Exactly. Yeah. It's clear that this hand has a mind of its own after Eustace questions it when Adrian's asleep. Huh. Hands the hand um, a pen and paper and is like, so you, you can write? And the hand's like, yes, I can. What do you think of this, Eustace? And is like having a conversation with him. Okay, wild. When Adrian dies of old age, Eustace is bequeathed Adrian's old books and some kind of box. Okay. And it, it, it's like, you hear something moving in it, and he thinks that it's like a pet rat or something. Mm-hmm. Turns out it's Adrian's right hand. Yeah, who could have seen this coming? Apparently, Adrian's solicitor had found a note from Adrian requesting for him to be embalmed and his right hand cut off and sent to Eustace. Okay. Uh, now, this hand escapes from the box and causes mischief through the house, like knocking off books, scaring maids, things like that. Like Thing from the Addams Family movies? Exactly. Good job, Ben. Um, <laughs> Eustace and his friend Saunders eventually capture it. Um, now, in the short story, he escapes and gets back and whatever because he like writes notes in Eustace's uh, handwriting. But eventually Eustace catches it and nails it to a board mm -hmm. and seals this hand okay. in a safe. Okay. He gets burgled, uh, and these burglars accidentally set the hand loose. <clears throat> so now this hand is out for revenge upon Eustace. He and Saunders try to get out to the country to try to get away, but the hand finds them. Um, in the climax of the story, uh, they are in this apartment. They've sealed the 
windows, the doors, um, you hear someone knocking, you hear someone tapping at the window, and eventually they're like, shit, the hand can come down the chimney. So they are trying to light a fire under the chimney, and they can hear the hand coming down, and eventually, because they are panicking, they take oil and a bed sheet and just try to really suddenly light the fire, but it goes badly, and now everything's on fire. Saunders runs out to go get help because everything's on fire, and the last thing he sees is a charred hand getting to Eustace. He screams and collapses in the fire. Huh. That's... that's the story? That's the story! That's pretty wild for, like, a story from... when did you say this was written? It was first published in 1919 later collected in 1928. Yeah, man, like, that's pretty wild. Like, you read a lot of other horror stuff from around that period, and it's like, the story would have been like, oh yeah, I'm gonna spend, like, 40 pages beating around the bush that, like, maybe there's a disembodied hand, maybe, and then, like, on the last page, I'll tell you that, like, oh, the house burned down, and we found, like, the dude and an extra hand, so maybe it was a thing. Like, this is like, no, like, the hand's going around and doing shit, like, this whole story. Like, yeah. I don't know, that's pretty wild. And it's never like the hand is inherently evil. He's a little mischievous. Um, yeah, what's the deal with the hand? Like, like, is there any explanation? No. Um, Adrian bred orchids. It's not like he was, like, a mad scientist or anything. He did traveling, but it's not like he was, like, involved in, like, witchcraft. Like, there's nothing like that given. Weird. Yeah. And because you brought up the Adams Family, um, the cartoon itself started in 1938, so after this would have been published. Um, but the first appearance of Thing came in the 1954 book, Homebodies. Yeah, to be fair, um, Thing isn't a disembodied hand until the movies in the 90s. Yeah, it was originally conceived as a whole person who's like too ugly or monstrous to be seen, so his hand pokes out of places. Um, but he became a disembodied hand in the 90s films to make it easier for him to be a character. Because of things with hands, I thought mm -hmm. it would be interesting to note that um, other things that we've seen with hands... Yes. <laughs> Just things around hands. Uh, in 1919, in Heimlich Eerie Tales, uh, one of the tales was the hand where um, a murdered yeah. man's hands come back to kill the murderer. Yeah, 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 yeah. Then, of course, we have the 1924 Hands of Orlac, mm -hmm. adapted from a novel. And then 1935's Mad Love, which adapts Orlac's hand, but still has the vestigial, like, hands. Yeah, yeah. When was the Hands of Orlac, like, book or whatever? Um, the book by Maurice Renard uh, was first published in 1920. Okay, yeah, so a lot of stuff coming around this same period. And I mean, like, the Victorian era, which ends in around 1900, um, apparently... Because I did, I was like, why, why all the, these hands? Right. Um, but I guess the Victorian era was kind of obsessed with hands as symbolic of character. Because, like, that's how you do things in sure. actions. You can see signs of someone's, uh, like, financial status. Um, the Victorian like era that. was fucking obsessed with trying to be like, 
oh yeah, I can tell exactly how worse you are than I am by a glance because your your skull is shaped this way and your fingers look like this. So I know scientifically that you're a shitty person. Like, yep. that's like their whole fucking deal. Yeah, so that's why we like with hands and like even palmistry and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So that that's kind of why I think with hands. But yeah, so more hands, Ben. I'm glad you brought up Mad Love. Because I think there's a pretty direct line you can draw from that movie to this in a lot of ways. But you can also draw a lot of lines from this movie to some previous um, anatomy-based possession <laughs> movies we've had. Yeah. Uh, stuff like Black Friday, uh, The Lady and the Monster, The Phantom Speaks, all of which connect back to Kurt Siedmak. Yeah. And that is who the writer of this film is. Uh, so Kurt Siedmak, uh wrote Black Friday, which was a universal movie that had sort of a crime plot with like a mad scientist flavoring where this scientist got a criminal's brain and developed like a split personality because of that. Uh, Siedmak himself wrote a novel, Donovan's Brain, that had a similar sort of theme and story about um, a like wealthy billionaire's brain being put into another guy's body and then that brain taking him over to finish his old business. That got adapted by Republic Pictures into The Lady and the Monster. And then Republic also made The Phantom Speaks, which didn't have any direct Mac connections, but also was like a crime movie about a dead crime boss who comes back to possess a guy. Just in that case, it was a ghost. So... <laughs> Following all these lines back to Kurt Siedmak, uh, he wanted to write this movie at Universal because that's the studio he was under contract with. That's who he'd been doing all of his movies for. But Universal was no longer in the horror movie business or the B-movie business, and therefore they weren't really in the Kurt Siedmak business anymore either. Well, what do you do when the studio you work for abandons the genre you specialize in? You kind of flounder for a couple years. Um, Siedmak's been kind of trying his best writing westerns and comedies and swashbucklers. Um, It hasn't really been going well. His movie right before this one was The Return of Monte Cristo, the second sequel to Count of Monte Cristo after Son of Monte Cristo. So after doing that and not really having a good time of it, he comes back to Beast with Five Fingers and decides to go to Warner Brothers with it. Warner had gotten rid of their B-movie department in 1941 and spent the war years making film noir movies and war pictures. So... And it fits. Warner Brothers is very urban. Yes. So now that the war is over, um, I think Warner was probably looking for some stuff to fill in the gaps in their programming that war movies would have had. And so Mac comes to them with this, and he actually wrote the script with Warner Brothers star Paul Henreid in mind. Oh. um, Who audiences probably remember best today as Victor Laszlo in Casablanca. But Henreid turned the movie down, uh, refusing to, in his words, play second fiddle to a dead hand. (laughs) Instead, the role went to Peter Lorre, and Siedmak was upset over this decision because he felt that Casting Laurie in the part sort of gave away uh, the movie's plotline because of what audiences expect from Peter Laurie. It's been a shockingly long time since we've seen Peter Laurie on the show. 
despite his star value and association with the horror genre, we haven't seen him since his Hollywood debut in 1935's Mad Love. Now, a claim for that role led to him getting a contract with 20th Century Fox, where he starred as Japanese detective Mr. Moto in a series of cheap mystery pictures that ended when Laurie, frustrated with the low quality of the series, ended his contract with Fox in 1939. In 1940, he appeared in the comedy You'll Find Out as one of the three villains alongside Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff, satirizing their reputations as horror stars. Laurie's career finally turned around in 1941 when John Huston cast him in The Maltese Falcon, mm -hmm. which uh, earned Laurie a contract with Warner Brothers. He was loaned out to Universal for the spy thriller The Invisible Agent, a non-horror entry in their Invisible Man series, and he was loaned to Columbia in 1942 for the Boris Karloff mad scientist comedy The Boogeyman'll Get You. For Warner Brothers, he appeared in Casablanca in 1942 and Arsenic and Old Lace in 1944, among many other films. However, by 1946, Peter Lorre's relationship with studio head Jack Warner had deteriorated due to the two men's political differences with regards to the growing Red Scare in America. Uh, Warner would testify as a friendly witness to HUAC, whereas Lorre would serve on the Committee for the Defense of the First Amendment with John Huston, and this political tension would result in Peter Lorre's contract with Warner Brothers being terminated in May of 1946. Thus, The Beast with Five Fingers would be Peter Lorre's final film with Warner Brothers. Starring as the film's male heroic lead is Robert Alda, father of actor Alan Alda. He was born Alfonso D'Abruzzo in New York City in 1914, uh, son of Italian immigrants, and he began his career in singing and dancing in vaudeville. His first film role was the lead in Warner Brothers' 1945 biopic of George Gershwin, Rhapsody in Blue. Okay, so they probably wanted to cast a nobody to mm -hmm. better inhabit this biopic type role. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, his film career never really quite hit those kind of heights again. Uh, he was successful on Broadway in the 1950s, and then in the 1960s he moved to Italy to act in Italian films. Uh, before passing away in 1986. Will we see him again? I know, like, Italy has some horror films. So. I don't know off the top of my head. Okay. Alda's co-star in this film is Andrea King, who was born Georgette Andre Berry in Paris, France in 1919. She moved with her American mother to the United States when she was two months old and began acting as a teenager on stage, made her way to Broadway in the 1930s. She signed with Warner Brothers in 1944, and they're the ones who changed her name. In the 1960s and 70s, she transitioned to acting on television, and her final role was in an episode of Murder, She Wrote, in 1990. Uh, and was, she, was she the person who got murdered? I don't know. Oh, okay. Uh, she passed away in 2003. Another returning familiar face in the cast is J. Carol Nash, oh. uh, who we last saw as Boris Karloff's assistant in 1944's House of Frankenstein. Uh, he's appeared in a number of films since then, including 1945's A Medal for Benny, for which he received his second Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor. 
The film's director is also an old friend of ours because it's Robert Florey. Yeah. Uh, who we haven't seen since Murders in the Rue Morgue, way back in like the early days of this show. So it's been so long that I thought it would be a good idea to maybe like go over his biographical details again. So Robert Florey was born Robert Fuchs in Paris in the year 1900. He was an orphan and was raised in an orphanage in Switzerland. Uh, he fell in love with Hollywood and movies when he was a teenager, and by the age of 20, he was writing articles in film magazines and appearing as an extra in French films. He moved to the United States in 1921, initially working as a film journalist, then a publicity agent for stars like Douglas Fairbanks, Mary Pickford, and Rudolph Valentino. From there, he became a writer and then an assistant director for MGM. His first film as a director was One Hour of Love in 1927, and he directed the first Marx Brothers feature film, The Coconuts, in 1929. In addition to these studio features, he also made experimental shorts on the side with his own money, like Johann the Coffin Maker and The Life and Death of 9413, A Hollywood Extra, which was a landmark avant-garde film that won popular and critical acclaim. It was one of the first films shot by cinematographer Greg Toland and was made for $97. <laughs> 97 wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. You can't make a movie for that cheap now. No. So Flory worked for Paramount, but in 1931 he was hired by Universal to helm their adaptation of Frankenstein starring Bela Lugosi. But that project sort of self-destructed when Lugosi rebelled against the idea of playing the creature instead of the doctor, and early makeup tests with Lugosi as the creature were rejected by Carl Lemley. When Lugosi was removed from the picture, Flory went with him in favor of James Whale's take. As a consolation prize, Flory and Lugosi were given Murders in the Rue Morgue. Flory and cinematographer Carl Freund designed that film around German expressionist visuals, but Universal got cold feet due to the film's transgressive content, and a re-edit to work around censorship cuts made the film's narrative confused, and the resulting movie was poorly received, and this failure led to Flory and Lugosi's careers both suffering. Flory survived this failure by becoming a reliable, fast director of B-movies who developed a reputation that he could be brought in to finish troubled productions on time. He found work at Warner Brothers, Paramount, and Columbia. Notable films from this period include Daughter of Shanghai, Hotel Imperial, and The Face Behind the Mask, a film noir he made with Peter Lorre in 1941, where Lorre plays a Hungarian immigrant whose face is horribly scarred. In the 1950s, Flory shifted almost entirely to working in television, where he stayed until his retirement, uh, and then he passed away in 1979. So the fact that he kind of went towards B-movies mm -hmm. after Murders in the Boom Morgue is why it's kind of surprising to me that we haven't seen him. Yeah. Because, like, horror is a B-movie genre. Yeah, he seems to have stayed away from horror. But then again, the studios he was working at, Warner's and Paramount and Columbia weren't big horror studios, although Columbia did have that stretch in the early 1940s, but I think by then he had moved over to Warner's, so it just didn't really connect, although his 
um, genre tastes kind of bounced around to whatever he was assigned to. Yeah. Um, that being said, um, he did try to still invoke that expressionist style whenever he could, especially in those film noir movies. Yeah, well, it's very well suited there. The film's score is by the legendary Max Steiner, the Hollywood composer who essentially invented scoring for sound films, introducing the ideas of musical themes and leitmotifs to movie music. Some of Steiner's best-known scores include King Kong, Of Human Bondage, A Star is Born, Dark Victory, Gone with the Wind, Casablanca, Now Voyager, Arsenic and Old Lace, Mildred Pierce, The Big Sleep, Key Largo, Treasure of Sierra Madre, The Fountainhead, The Searchers, etc., etc. Wow, that's a very long list of very good movies. Yes. Uh, Steiner was under contract with Warner Brothers from 1937 to 1953, and so he scored Beast with Five Fingers as, you know, part of that. So this was just another assignment for him, basically. Uh, One interesting fact, however, is that Steiner used his knowledge of classical music to base the film around Johann Brahms' transcription for piano of Bach's Partita in D minor. And the reason why he used this was because Brahms' transcription of this piece for piano was written solely for the left hand. Oh, dope. So the film's score is worked around that music. The Beast with Five Fingers was released on Christmas Day, 1946, and it would be the last Warner Brothers attempt at horror for six years. Wow. We're not going to see another Warner horror movie until 1953. I mean, to be fair, even if this had been successful, I think they still would have seen the writing on the wall about horror. Yeah, yeah. The film was released on DVD as part of the Warner Archive Collection in 2013, and you can find it to uh, watch online on Google Play and YouTube. Great. Well, folks, if you want to watch along, you can go to our YouTube playlist by going to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find a link to watch the movie along with us. In the meantime, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Beast with Five Fingers from 1946, directed by Robert Flurry. See you on the other side, everybody. Back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Beast with Five Fingers, directed by Robert Flory from 1946. What did you think, Ben? Um. First thoughts. Mixed bag. Yeah. Um, that would be kind of my first thoughts. This movie isn't what you want it to be, but I think it's probably still worth checking out. Yeah, I did really enjoy it. And then they flubbed the end. Sure. 
and I agree with you that this isn't exactly what you want it to be, but it, I think they do a fairly good job. Yeah, I think the thing that really threw me off the most is that the story didn't seem to give much resemblance to the, like, short story, other than the central imagery of, like, killer disembodied hand. Yeah, they do adapt, um, and I'll, I'll go into this later, but they do adapt some scenes. Okay. Um, there's a moment when the hand is behind a bookcase, mm. and that's how they first trap the hand in the story. Yeah, there was the bit with the hand and the nail. Yeah, so that there are some things, but mm. in terms of plot, it's not a loyal adaptation. Yeah, so what is the plot? So the film is a little bit like an old dark house kind mm -hmm. of story. And as we've seen with those types of stories, it gets a little convoluted. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to kind of lay out our characters and then go into the actual story. Okay. So we are set in a small Italian town around 50 years ago, uh, which would be around 1896. And in this small town lives a noted pianist named Francis Ingram. After a stroke left his right arm and kind of right side of his body paralyzed, he's learned to play the piano with just his left hand. Julie Holden is Ingram's nurse, and Ingram has fallen in love with her, but she plans to leave her position soon because she is kind of like creeped out by his attention and need for her. Mm -hmm. Hilary Cummins is also here. This is played by Peter Lorre. He is played by Peter Lorre, and Hilary is Ingram's secretary, who I would say is kind of like an amateur astrologer, um, so like everything about the zodiac, um, just to make sure people aren't thinking of astronomy. Right, yeah. I, I do get them confused, but astrology, as in like, you were born under the sign of the Gemini. Mm -hmm. Your rising sign is Aquarius. Mm -hmm. Now, Hilary doesn't like Ingram really hates his job, but loves that Julie is there, not because he has any um, romantic feelings for her, but because she acts as almost like a buffer between him and Ingram, so that Hillary can focus on doing research in this huge library of Ingrams. Yeah, he has all these old antique, like, medieval books, and Hillary... Just loves them. Yeah, he thinks that he can, like, solve the riddles of the universe if he just reads enough astrology books, essentially, is what I got. <laughs> We also have Bruce Conrad. Um, in the credits, his name is Conrad Riley, but everyone calls him Bruce Conrad in the actual film. This is Robert Alda. Bruce is introduced to us as kind of a, a mischievous trickster. He cons American tourists with fake Italian antiques, for example. Um, but he's a good friend of Ingram's. He's a musicologist. He actually transcribed Bach's Violin Partita in D minor to be played by just the left hand on piano for Ingram. And then we have Commissario Castanio, played by J. Carol Nash, who is the town's commissioner of police. Mm -hmm. Or police commissioner. Yep, both of those descriptions are accurate. So with these people in mind, the film opens with a seeing Conrad ripping off some American tourists, then going to Ingram's for dinner. During dinner, Ingrams also invites his lawyer, Duprex, because he's updating his will and has everyone at dinner vouch for his sanity. Everyone as in um, Hillary is there, Julie, Bruce, and then the lawyer. Mm -hmm. After dinner, Julie and Conrad 
uh, head to the garden where they confess their love for each other. And Conrad says, I'll leave with you. Hilly overhears this, and he doesn't want Julie to leave because then that buffer between him and Ingram will be gone. So he goes to Ingram and tells him Julie is leaving him. And in a fit of rage, Ingram chokes Hillary nearly to death, but Julie intervenes. That night, Julie puts Ingram to bed and goes to tend to Hillary's neck. Ingram wakes up because it's a dark and stormy night, gets into his wheelchair, is looking around for Julie, calling out for her, and uh, in an accident, he falls down the stairs and dies. So, it's time to read the will! Mm-hmm. Ingram's last surviving relatives, his brother-in-law Raymond Arlington and nephew Donald, arrive to scope out their new digs and assets, and they tell Hillary that you're not going to be mooching off of us any longer, we're taking our books, and he's like, but they're my books, and they're like, we don't care, yeah, we're selling all of this. Yeah, their plan is to like take all these Italian antiques and sell them at auction and get rich. Exactly. But... In a move only Ryan Johnson could have predicted, the Ingrams have left everything to Nurse Julie. Yeah. Raymond, that's a Knives Out yes. reference. Okay, cool. I just thought I would specify in case mm-hmm. there's any listeners who haven't seen Knives Out, which they should stop listening to us and go see. Raymond and Donald are upset, and so they hire lawyer Duprex to get this will annulled in favor of the original, which left everything to Donald. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, there's some strange things going on in the house, like the lights in the mausoleum turning on and some weird sounds. That night, Duprex is attacked and choked out by what appears to be Ingram's hand. And then later, the piano is played at night. Mm-hmm. And that is how they discovered Duprex's body. So they call the police and get police commissario involved. Checking the mausoleum and opening up the stone casket thing... They open up the sarcophagus and find Ingram's left hand has been removed, seemingly by the knife in the right hand. Yeah, as if corpse Ingram cut off his own left Left hand. hand, Which is metal as hell. Yeah. You know, kind of, like, they point out, like, that shouldn't be possible, A, because he was for sure dead, and B, he was paralyzed in his right side, so even if he was alive, he shouldn't have been able to move it. Mm -hmm. In any case... That hand is missing, and they find handprints, not footprints, leading away from the mausoleum. Yeah, like, the physical evidence implies the hand, like, busted a hole in the window of the mausoleum and then, like, (laughs) leaped out and, like, ran away. (laughs) Oh, it's such a fun movie. Donald, not put off by the lawyer's death, begins searching around the library for the hidden safe where the first will is stored, but he's stopped by Hillary. That night, Donald goes to the library again to look for the safe and open it up, and the commissario follows secretly, and we see that Don is attacked by a hand! Mm-hmm. On his left hand, Ingram wore, like, a big shiny ring, so whenever we see, like, a hand with that ring on it, that's how we know it's Ingram's hand and not, like, somebody else's. Yeah, that's that's good. Who knows whose hands these hands belong to? Yeah. <laughs> so Don is attacked, but the commissario gets to him, uh, so Don isn't fully killed, but he is injured. Later, 
Hillary sees Ingram's hand in the study at, on the desk, and he tries to catch it, and he traps it in the desk. But it escapes before he's able to bring Julie and Conrad over to check it. And all the previous times we've seen the hand, it's been like it's reached from, like, off screen or around a corner or something, as if it might still be attached to a person. But, like, Hillary sees it, like, full Adam's Family thing style, like, walking around. Yeah, it's actually done pretty well. The mm -hmm. special effects are fairly well done. Mm -hmm. So Julie and Conrad leave the study like, Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you caught a hand, Hillary. <laughs> so they leave, and then Hillary, again alone, hears the hand behind some bookshelves and traps it again, this time to keep it from escaping. <laughs> he, he nails it to a wooden plank, mm -hmm. and it's dope. After he does that, he heads back upstairs, and Conrad meets him, and Hillary is saying, I caught the hand, I nailed it, to, like, a board, and Conrad's like, sure, sure you did, you should go to bed, mm -hmm. and just kind of placates him. Donald awakens from his injuries, and remembers the safe combination. So, with his dad and Commissario, because he's in the house, they go down to the library, open safe, and find the hand nailed to the plank inside the safe. Donald freaks out because he's like, fuck, it's here again to kill me, and just runs away, um, just like panicked, out of the house. And Conrad catches up with him and tries to calm him down. Meanwhile, at the same time, Julie upstairs confronts Hillary that the hand isn't real. You're the one committing the murders, aren't you? Because the Arlingtons were going to take your books away. Then we get, like, this neat moment where uh, Hillary's like, No, no, it wasn't me. Like, It's the hand. It's the hand. And he, he says, Can't you hear the hand playing the piano right now? And uh, through neat camera work, we can tell that Hillary hears the piano and sees the hand on the piano. But Julie looking at the piano, there's nothing there. Mm -hmm. So clearly it's all in Hillary's head. She tries to explain, no, it's all in your head, and he attacks her because she now knows the secret, mm -hmm. but he's, he's kind of unhinged. And he's like, well, you haven't told anyone, um, and you're the one who's going to kind of expose this, but it's all the hand, so I will kill you. Mm -hmm. So he attacks her, and she gets out of this by saying, no, you're right, I hear the music too. Uh, you were totally right, it's the hand, it must be destroyed. You better go kill that hand. Go, go destroy the hand, and he's like, you're right, I will go destroy the hand. So he goes down, grabs the hand off the piano, and goes into the study and throws the hand into the fireplace, the lit fireplace. Um, and we see it burning up and crawling out and choking Hillary to death. Yeah, it's it's a very, like, evil dead kind of moment. Yeah, and as Hillary dies, we see the hand disappear. Next day, Julie and Conrad are leaving. She explains, I bet the Arlingtons will be happy I'm leaving them the house and estate. They go downstairs, and Commissario is going over how Hillary got a recording of Ingram's playing the piano mm -hmm. and had a... Uh, a phonograph record player hidden to play the piano so it would kind of spook everyone out um, and killed Duprex to make it look like it was um, Ingram's hand. Mm -hmm. But because of doing a murder, um, 
Hillary's mind snapped, and he started to believe his own cover story. Yeah. The end. <laughs> There's a little bit more, but we don't need to go into that. Well, it's, <laughs> who would have believed a hand and, like, making fun of it. Like, you know that sitcom ending kind of thing where, like, there's one last joke before the end credits kind of thing? Or, like, the way that old Star Trek episodes used to end where it's like, ha, 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 Spock can't feel love or whatever. Um, <laughs> like... It's that, but it's like three times. Yeah, it's because, like, please stop. Because the maid thinks she sees the hand and faints, and then, oh, it was actually just the commissario's glove on the stairs. And then, like, the lights flicker weird, and the commissario's like, oh, I better get out of here, and, like, does, like, a cartoon run out of the house. And then when he gets to the door, he's like, but really, that would be so silly, like a hand that could kill people. And then the hand comes up from out of screen. And he's like, oh, and then it turns out, no, that's just my hand because I'm making jokes. And then, like, finally leaves. Like, it's three joke endings in a row. And I think they're actually all one continuous shot. Yeah. Like, it's, yeah. It's a lot. So I think this movie has a lot of strengths and a lot of weaknesses. And they kind of cancel each other out in a lot of places. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's true. Like I said in the beginning, I really did enjoy this movie. I read the short story in order to summarize it for the show. It's not long. I do recommend you read it because it is quite good. So I really enjoyed when this film was adapting scenes in it. Mm. The movie takes a while to get going, and it is mostly just, like, another take on the old Dark House thing with the inheritance subplot and everybody staying in the same house and so on. And the ending brings us right back to the old-fashioned, like, everything-has-a-logical-explanation, Scooby-Doo-style ending. So the whole thing has a bit of, like, an old-fashioned kind of feel to it. I guess with horror on the way out, and Warner Brothers having always been kind of tepid on the genre anyways, it... I guess, made sense to be playing it safe in this way. Um, but there is, like, a solid stretch in the middle of the movie where you can just sit back and pretend that the killer hand is legit. And uh, those are the best scenes in the movie. That's what makes the movie worth watching is the, like, scenes from Hillary's point of view with the killer hand. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think Peter Lorre is doing a great job. He's melodramatic in a very fun way. Yeah. Um, not to the point where he's chewing scenery, um, but I, I feel like he's sincere in how he's hamming it up. Yeah, I think his his casting may have tipped off the fact that Hillary was mad. Like, it becomes a very obvious, like, oh, it's Peter Lorre. Like, what a surprise. But I am glad he was cast because other than the hand itself, he's the best part of the movie. You know, who knows if Peter Henry could have portrayed the madness as well as Peter Lorre does. Like, it's not a surprise when Peter Lorre's character goes insane, but once he is mad, he's very good at playing that. Yeah, and going from a frenzied performance in a scene to, like, a creepily calm mm -hmm, moment mm -hmm. in the same scene. Like, he does a really good job. Yeah, I think the problem that I find with this movie, like, even though I enjoyed a lot of it, was the script and the movie, like, everything just feels like it's kind of working cross-purposes sometimes. Like, I think the script does a pretty decent job at first of making you think it could be anybody. Even the possibility of Bruce being maybe the killer is set up. Like, everyone's kind of set up well. They set up that, like, Ingram has, like, a lot of abnormal strength in the one hand he has, I guess, to explain how a hand on its own can just strangle people. 
Um, and then, like, that, I mean, that's not how strength works, but, but, like, Bruce himself, even though he's, like, the nominal male lead, is, like, set up as someone who, like, deceives and tricks people, so, like, maybe it's him, and, like, who's kind of greedy, so maybe it is him for the money, maybe it's the Arlingtons, you know, maybe it's Julie doing it for some reason, like, like, it's all kind of believable, the problem is that one of them's played by Peter Lorre, yeah. right, and I think the compounded version of that problem is that, like, I think it was a mistake to make Peter Lorre the person who goes insane and thinks there's a hand and the person who was faking the hand to begin with. Yeah. Like, it would have made more sense to me if, like, someone else had started faking the hand and then Peter Lorre from being in that environment with the hand and having gotten choked out by Ingram earlier and all that kind of stuff, then started hallucinating and going mad. But the idea that, like, he knew the hand was fake because he was the one faking it and then went mad and thought the hand was real is just, like, a bit of a stretch to me. Yeah, the their, like, attempt to give a quick explanation at the end is not good. <laughs> like, I, I don't buy it at all. I think it would have been just fine to leave it as, like, unexplained... Like, we don't need to explain, like, how we could have heard the music. Like, it should have just been a hand, guys. Well, yeah, I mean, it should have just been the disembodied hand. But after they made that decision, right, like, that it's not going to be, then, yeah, you kind of have to explain where was the music coming from. You have to explain everything. The problem is, is, like, even if it hadn't been Peter Lorre in the role, the idea that it's Hillary because he wants to, like, stick with his books and stuff is, like, way too telegraphed. And it's, like, the most obvious explanation for the storyline. And in a movie like this, like an old Dark House movie, you want it to be... He should have been a red herring. Yes, he should have been a red herring because you want it to be a twist. And, like, even the fact that, I don't know, I think the fact that everyone's first reaction to Hillary saying, hey, I've, I've seen the hand, is, oh, you're crazy, means that, like... Even the twist that he's crazy isn't a twist because the whole time we're seeing him freak out about the hand, we already kind of know that he's just hallucinating because that's what all the other characters think already. Maybe it was structured that way because Warner Brothers was like so worried about people not reacting well to the disembodied hand thing that they wanted to make sure that there was like padding on like both <laughs> sides of those scenes to make it clear it wasn't real. Yeah, like, even the way that um, Conrad is shot when he's placating Hillary, like, and the way he's speaking, yeah. it's like, why are you talking like... It's like when uh, Homer is coming to Bart. Bart, do you want to see my new chainsaw and hockey mask? Ah! Oh, sorry. Conrad in that scene, I thought they were setting up that Conrad was driving Peter Lorre insane on purpose for some reason. But no, the whole story's just Peter Lorre. Yeah. Everything's just Peter Lorre. Everybody else is normal. And yeah. like, so it kind of makes everything too predictable every step of the way. And it's a little disappointing because the short story is so focused. Mm. And while the film, like I said, does adapt exact scenes really well, there's stuff added in here in this adaptation that really muddles the horror. Mm -hmm. Like everything, like, before that dinner scene. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a good, like, ten minutes of, like, American tourists coming to this town. Look uh, at this, like, charming ne'er-do-well and, like, the nurse he has a crush on. And, like, yeah, it's it, there's a lot. Yeah. It takes a while to get going, and then the ending kind of undercuts everything. Yeah. I, I feel like there's lots of why asked <laughs> throughout this movie. Yeah. Like, why are we in Italy? 
right? Why do we have such superstitious townsfolk? What What is that adding to this yeah. except a pad for something? Like, why do we have a piano here? Like, that's not in the short story. Is it just, like, because people were, like, ah, uh, the only connection people have with hand spookiness is um, the hands of Orlac? Like, yeah, like, that's that? so weird. Like, it's... why are there so many people here? Yeah. Because when we first meet Conrad, I was like, okay, and he's like, friends with Ingram, okay, so he's probably taking the place of the nephew. And then, like, brother-in-law and nephew shop, and I was like, why the fuck are these people here? And they don't even get killed off. Yeah, yeah, like, the, the Arlingtons get forgotten about, like, midway through the movie. Like, we see when Donald runs out scared that, like, Conrad follows him and, like, finds him and is, like, calming him down. He's like, hey, everybody, he's over here. But for all that they have left to contribute to the plot, he might as well have, like, run through a wall and left, like, a Donald-shaped hole in it, and that would have been the end of him because they don't really come back into the story. And it's like we have a lot of extraneous characters, but there's only really, like, one death, which is Duprex. And then it's like... Well, and Ingram. Right, but, like, that's (laughs) your inciting incident, right? Like, so we have the police inspector and Conrad, who could have been combined into one character... Then we've got Julie, we've got Peter Laurie, and then it's like we've got the scheming nephew and uncle. And it's like really, you, you, you for a structure like this, like you need one hero, one heroine, one scheming guy, and then maybe like one red herring character, yeah. right? Yeah. And we've just got too many of these different characters who aren't really adding anything. Like why is there a nephew and an uncle they're both basically just two halves of the same character in terms of what their, like, narrative purpose is. Yeah, we even get stuff with the servants. I mean, part of that is, like, to see them react to, like, spooky things like the piano or lights on in the mausoleum, but they also don't really add anything else. I think I would have been really disappointed with the reveal that the hand was just in Peter Lorre's head, except that the movie... Like, if you're well-versed enough in these kinds of movies, which we are by this point, you can tell, like, I could feel it in my bones that the hand was fake very early on. Just the movie's doing enough to set up things so that later it'll make sense that the hand is fake. It's doing enough to set that up that, like, you can see it coming. Like, just the fact that, like, oh, we never see the hand with anyone else other than Hillary in the room. Or, like... Just an abundance of little things like that where you're like, oh, yeah, they're going to reveal this is all a trick later. Yeah. Everybody's in the house when all the murders or attacks occur, except for Peter Lorre, who then will, like, walk in through the front door and be like, like, he's fucking Kramer, and be like, what? Another murder while I was out of the house? (laughs) Um, And I have my alibi, quote unquote. Now, we're sort of talking, like, narrative stuff. I will say that on a craft level, the movie has a really good score. Yes. And it has really good cinematography. Not just lighting, but camera movement is really good. And um, the framing is really good. There's a lot of good framing throughout this film. Yeah, they're clearly putting thought into how they are constructing different shots, how they're constructing scenes. Like we have, um, I I assume it's a crane shot, Mm -hmm. where... um, 
what's kind of neat is like there's a big open foyer where the piano is and then a staircase going up along the side up to what's basically like a balcony and there's one shot where we're on Peter Lorre at the top and we follow him going down the staircase as he approaches the hand to eventually throw it into the fire. Like I said, Dutch angles, um, whenever things are getting creepy. With the score, I don't know if it was the score or sound design, mm. but there was a lot of like creepy, like, ooh. Yeah, yeah. And like theremin slightly yeah. sounds. Even when it's just like a spooky night, not yes. when anything actually spooky is going on. It, it was really well crafted. Yeah, the the impression, like, I don't know, there's just a lot of little things where it's like, oh yeah, you can shoot people from low angles or high angles to like, like just basic film school shit about filmmaking that's a little bit more involved than just like, you know, locking off the tripod at a mid shot and calling it a day. And it really helped this film feel more like a horror movie than it was, I guess. Like, it feels like it's being shot as a horror movie, even as the script is undercutting that. Um, Peter Lorre's always lit from below. Yeah, even, like, as he's, like, walking up to people. Yes. So, like, the logistics involved of someone basically crouching with the flashlight. Yeah, yeah. You know? The impression I got is that if, you know, even if Robert Flory's been slumming it, in B-movies for the past 15 years, like, he hasn't lost any skill as a director. Like, he still knows how to make films. Yeah, which I appreciate. He didn't go the William Bodine route of being like, ah, fuck it, you know? Yeah. Um, He's he's clearly... I mean, like, you gave his bio Mm -hmm. in the beginning. He has a passion for film. Mm -hmm. Um, I think he's someone who has a passion for all genres and respects all genres, um, as seen by, like, the movie crafting that's going on here. Even, again, as you've said, even as the script undercuts itself, which is just, like, so frustrating, especially the end. Like, I yelled out at the end, like, why, why do you keep making this worse? Like, stop. Stop fucking talking. Yeah, you really got the sense that someone at Warner Brothers was really worried about audiences not liking the premise. And it's like... Hey, we bought the ticket, man. Like, we're on You have board. our money. Yeah. It reminded me of how Flory tried to balance stuff in Murders in the Room more. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think he does a better job here, but it's 15 years later. You better be doing a better job. But he's still floundering. And I don't know if it's him or, like you said, an exec um, up the food chain. But because it was just so repeatedly, like, at the end... Isn't all of this just fun and games? It reminded me of when, um, like, Van Helsing at the beginning of uh, Frankenstein is like, things are spooky, ho ho, like... Yeah, yeah. Well, or like, I don't know, the way that the ending is kind of like a break the fourth wall, turn and look at the camera thing reminds me of, like, Ape Man, which had, like, the weird narrator and stuff. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. It's just kind of a way of saying, like, see, we're not taking this so seriously, you know? Um... And it's it's not like you you need to take horror seriously, or you you would need to take this movie seriously, but like seriously in the sense of like solemn and somber and yeah. like you know you can have to... you can have fun, but you do need to take your own premise seriously so that like everything else in the movie can follow from that. 
Yeah, we've seen how that can be super successful, even with something super shitty, like the invisible ghost. Mm-hmm. If, if there's something better about the way Flory does this balancing act between horror and lightness in this movie, it's that this movie's sort of structured like a sandwich. Yes. Where the stuff that undercuts it is at the beginning and end, and you have this really solid middle stretch, rather than inserting the stuff that undercuts it into the middle, which interrupts that flow. I think what you have in this movie is like really excellent filling between two stale pieces of bread. <laughs> As you mentioned earlier, the, the special effects for the hand are really well done. The thing that makes them work is that they're using a variety of different techniques yeah. to pull off the illusion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a lot of it is kind of a invisible man thing where they've got a dude just sort of with his hand in the scene and they're painting the dude out but leaving the hand. But then there's certain angles where you can see the, like, bone, like the, the like a top down on the disembodied wrist. And that they're using, like, perspective tricks where they've done a prosthetic severed wrist on the real guy's hand kind of coming off of his arm at an angle and then using perspective tricks to make that look right when they paint out the rest of the guy's arm. There's also a, like, prop hand that Peter Lorre can carry around. There's um, clearly, like, a little motorized hand that can kind of, like, make crawling motions with its fingers a little bit. Yeah, not, not like, a robotic hand. No, no, like, just, it, it's, it's just like a like... motor in a... Yeah. It, but, it... <laughs> but, like, you know, because they're not relying on any one of those things to do the whole work, um, it makes it work better by using different techniques for different kinds of shots. It's just too bad that it's all in service to an imaginary hand. Yeah, I really would have preferred if this had been a real hand. Um, even, even like, keeping with Peter Laurie's character going insane because mm -hmm. it's a fucking disembodied hand yeah like, yeah i i would probably lose my shit if i saw a hand crawling across the floor and with all the characters reacting like oh no you're actually just seeing things it would have been a bigger twist if it had been real yeah it would have been like justice <laughs> in a weird way so we we've kind of discussed how the beast with five fingers is similar to some of these other movies with, like, Murders in the Room Morgue and balancing issues and things like that. So where would you think to rank this? Well, I just kind of have a spot picked out. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because this movie has kind of a, like, it was all a fake premise, I looked for Mark of the Vampire, um, which is at 69. Nice. And I thought, well, you know, is this better than Mark of the Vampire? Well, right above Mark of the Vampire is Ghost of Frankenstein. I was like, well, this is definitely better than Ghost of Frankenstein. Looking above Ghost of Frankenstein, like, there's a bunch of other movies, blah, 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 and then there's Murders in the Rue Morgue at 61. And that's really directly comparable to this for obvious reasons. Right above Murders in the Rue Morgue is Dr. X, which is another Warner Brothers horror movie. So I feel like it can be compared to that as well. Now, both of those movies came out in 1932, way before this. Um, so, you know, there's some things you can't compare, but I ended up just kind of coming down on like the fact that I felt this movie did a better job balancing the horror and the stuff that undercuts the horror than Murders in the Room Morgue did, um, but is not as good as Dr. X, which also has like comedic relief elements, but at least doesn't tell you at the end of the movie that the entire premise was fake. So... I kind of ended up putting this movie between those two. I thought Dr. X is better than this, Murders in the Room Morgue is not, and I slotted this at 61. Sure. Okay. I see what you're saying. 
Um, I also compared it with Murders in the Rue Morgue, but I also looked at Mad Love, which is at 24. That's a really good... Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, in that there's Disembodied Hands and Peter, Peter Lorre. Now, Mad Love, like I said, is at 24. This movie, The Beast with Five Fingers, is way out of place. Yeah, it's that not that high in the no, list. Yeah. And then I started thinking about J. Carol Nash. Despite the joke stuff at the end, I think he gave a very good performance here. Mm-hmm. Um, it was clear he was having fun. He was very convincing. He was really good. Um, and it made me think about Dr. Renault's secret. Right. Where, you know, he's he's still doing pretty good, but how do these two movies compare in terms of horror movies? And, you know, I, I, I wasn't quite sure. So I kind of went up from there, stopped around um, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Beast with Five Fingers could be better than Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Um, it at least balances, you know a lot of different things better than Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, but I don't think it's better than House of Frankenstein above that. So my ceiling was 43, mm-hmm. and then going down, um, right below Dr. Renault's secret is Orlok's Hand. Yeah. Um, at 50. And, you know, Orlok's Hand, we really liked Conrad Veidt's performance. He does a really amazing job of, like, going insane because of these hands, but the rest of the movie is kind of meandering at best um, because it's trying to adapt this French novel that is very long and complicated. So I thought that would be my floor. So my range was actually 43 to 50, Hmm. which is um, about 10 spots higher than yours. Now if we look between my floor of Orlok's Hand down to Murders in the Rue Morgue, the middle point is around the ghoul, dead men walk, and the raven. Yeah, I mean, it's ten spots, so the exact middle is dead men walk. I think the thing about I think about with this compared to Orlok's Honda is Orlok's hand, at least, like, the hands of Orlok maintains a consistent genre and tone throughout the movie, even if the plot is convoluted. It does make me realize suddenly that, like, every movie about, like, chopped off hands turns out to be a rod at the end like if we finally get one of these where no he actually is being possessed by the hand of the killer or whatever i'll be impressed because none of them have been that they've all been fakes the ones that have been real have been involved with um either real life possession or brain transplant right which and that I, seems more like <laughs> i guess more like unbelievable because it's a fucking brain but also more believable that it's like, yeah, I can see that a brain could take you over. Yeah, yeah. Like, if I take out my brain and I put in your brain, I could see why that would make you possess me better than if I just had your hand. Yeah. So, you know. <laughs> um, so I don't really think this is better than Hand of Orlac, but as you said, we're looking in between for kind of a compromise spot here. Um, Dead Men Walk. What fucking movie was that? Oh, that's the one with Zuko... Yeah, doing like a Dracula type of thing. Yeah, where he's both Dracula and Van Helsing because they're twin brothers. And then Dwight Fry is playing Renfield again, basically. Basically. Yeah, 1943 from Newfield. I think this is better than that. uh, Just on like a filmmaking craft and performances basis. Then above that is The Ghoul. And then Strangler of the Swamp, Invisible Ghost, White Zombie. Yeah, I don't think this goes above Strangler of the Swamp. 
um, which has its problems, but like does a good job at atmosphere and and sort of maintaining atmosphere. I think the special effects are better in Beast with Five Fingers. Yeah, I think that's fair, but I think I would enjoy those special effects more if, like, there was a real disembodied hand and Strangler of the Swamp has a real ghost. That's true. Um, The ghoul is always hard because, like, it's such a weird movie. It's like the old dark house and the mummy kind of mashed together. I guess it makes it a little similar to this in that they're both old dark house variations. Yeah, the ghoul does have a um, a successful red herring character in that there's a person in blackface who you're supposed to think is pulling the strings behind everything. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like Beast with Five Fingers is better than the ghoul because of the quality of filmmaking going on here. It's very convincing in the middle. It does have this sandwich type of structure, as you pointed out, but the ghoul... Um, has like a very good beginning when Karloff is dying and then has a very good climax. So it's almost like reverse sandwich. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in the middle of the ghoul that's just kind of tiresome. Yeah. All right, I'm I'm good with that then. Okay, so... Number 54. Uh, so yes, entering the list at number 54 is The Beast with Five Fingers from 1946, directed by Robert Flory. Good job, Flora. You, you got higher than Murders in the Room Morgue. You're showing improvement. Mm-hmm. Um, if you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other films and episodes that we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can submit your appeal through our Ask Box on Tumblr. You can email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can reach out over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and SoundCloud. You can subscribe to the show and listen to it on whatever podcasting app you prefer using our RSS feed. And if you'd like to help the show out, you can leave us a rating or a review on the podcast casting app that you prefer. Um, Apple Podcasts is kind of the main one uh, in terms of like where ratings and reviews have a really good effect on how many people see the podcast and how many people are listening. Um, another way to help us grow listenership is just through word of mouth, telling your friends, coworkers, etc. about the show. Um, and then another way you can really help us out is on our Patreon. Uh, by heading over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, you can become a patron for as little as a dollar a month. And as Sarah mentioned at the top of the show, patrons of all levels uh, just got access to our special Q&A, uh, where we had a lot of great discussions um, based around the questions that some of our patrons sent in to us. So to hear that, head over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast and sign up. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, next week... We are watching a kind of momentous movie. It's not probably going to be good, but it has (laughs) historical significance in that it is the only color film that Bela Lugosi ever made. Oh, cool. It's also the only film we'll be seeing in the year 1947. Oh. It's Scared to Death, and it's an indie horror film with Bela Lugosi and George Zuko. I'm glad they got to act together. It'll be interesting to see what it's like. Yeah. I think, yeah, they've acted together before, but this, it's still cool. 
All right. Well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.